The word trust is hard to define. It's kind of like the word faith without the religious connotation. When you trust in someone, you're really just believing in something you can't see. Because you can't see the future, you don't really know whether a person will ever betray your trust, but you give it to them anyway. You trust your friends will be there for you when you need them. You trust your partner won't cheat on you. You trust your children will make good choices. There are some of us who give our trust away much more easily than others. Me, I'm others. And you probably would have guessed that given the theme of this podcast. Joseph McStay was a happily married businessman and he was one of those people who easily trusted those around him. And it worked for him for the most part. He was able to build relationships that brought him success and happiness in both his personal and business life until he chose to place his trust in someone who didn't deserve it. But Joseph was believing in something he couldn't see, choosing to see goodness instead of the black hole that existed inside of this person. If only we could see the future. Maybe for Joseph, it would have saved not only his life, but the lives of his family. Welcome to the podcast that reminds you, it isn't the boogeyman you should be worried about. It's the stranger you know. Joseph McStay grew up with his mother, Susan, his adopted father, Patrick, and his half-brother, Michael, in Ohio, until his parents divorced in 1975. The divorce was hard on Joseph. He had always been really close with his dad, and like all kids who go through a divorce, the transition from seeing both his parents every day to scheduled visitations was tough. Still, he keeps a close relationship with his dad throughout his adolescent years and into adulthood. When he's 21 years old, he meets a woman named Heather and they get married two years later. They settle into a nice home in San Clemente, California, where they live close to the beach and eventually they welcome a son they name Jonah. For Joseph, becoming a father was everything he dreamed of and life was good for him and his small family, but Joseph felt like he wanted to pursue his dreams of owning his own business. He had always had an entrepreneurial spirit. Like when he was 17 and he had come up with this idea to make bracelets made from wetsuit material for his surfer friends. Soon enough, his bracelets were so popular that he turned his idea into a real business, calling them dinky wristbands. When he later sold the rights to the wristbands, he experienced his first taste of turning an idea into profit. So now, as a young husband and father, looking to establish himself financially for his family, he once again comes up with a business idea. He begins designing small-scale water features in the garage of his home, which leads to him buying and opening a store he called Naturally Dana Point. The shop does well, 
grossing over $100,000 in water feature sales. It's doing so well, in fact, that he launches a second company, this time a fountain business he calls Naturally DP Fountains, and he hires his brother Michael as president of the company. It seems like Joseph was blazing a path in the industry for himself. Until he's hit with a lawsuit by a competitor, claiming his fountain business infringed on its packaging. The lawsuit eventually settles, but it's a huge financial setback for Joseph's company. And then Joseph's personal life takes a downturn as well. He learns his wife Heather is pregnant again, but he's devastated when she tells him the baby might not be his. While Joseph had been putting all of his time and effort into growing his business, His wife had met someone else and had been seeing him for months. He's left reeling from the news, but Joseph wants desperately for his family to stay together and for his son to grow up with both of his parents. He tells his wife that he doesn't care whether the baby is his or not. He wants to work things out, but his wife, she doesn't feel the same way. Their separation sends Joseph spiraling into a deep depression. It takes him months to pull himself out of the despair he felt over losing his family, but over time, he does. And with the return of the hope that one day he would have another chance at love, so too returns his ambition to create and grow another business venture. He connects with a man named Dan Cavanaugh, a tech-savvy website guru who believes he can help Joseph successfully take his fountain business online. With his help, Joseph forms a new company he calls Earth Inspired Products. The business, which served as a reseller for indoor and outdoor water features for larger manufacturers, begins to expand rapidly, which is due in large part to Joseph's uncanny business sense and his charming personality. He's able to sell products to businesses that aren't necessarily unique in nature, but it's his passion and drive that attracts buyers and really makes the difference. I feel like there are people in this world that are just born with a certain talent for sales, and Joseph, he was just one of those people. Things are really starting to come together again for him when a friend introduces him to a woman named Summer Martelli in 2004. Joseph felt an immediate attraction to her, and it was the first woman he had met since his divorce that had caught and held his attention. And there was a lot to like. Summer had this cool hippie vibe to her with long black hair, but she was also a strong, independent woman who owned her own surf instruction business at the time they met. She was opinionated and ambitious, something Joseph could definitely relate to. Their connection was undeniable for them both, and their relationship moved fast. By November 2004, Summer is pregnant with their first child, a boy they named Gianni, who she gives birth to on July 9, 2005. The couple later welcomes a second child, another boy who they named Joseph Jr., Almost two years later, that same year, Joseph and Summer make it official and get married. Summer embraces her role as a devoted mother and wife. She refers to her family as the core four, 
and she's protective of them. But she really dedicates herself to raising her boys and supporting her husband, Joseph, who continues to successfully grow his decorative waterfall business. It's around this time that Joseph decides to take his business to the next level, and he meets a man named Charles Merritt, also sometimes referred to as Chase. Chase, who was a welder by trade, was able to work on the custom features requested by his business clients, and it really helps Joseph grow his company. And the relationship between Joseph and Chase grows over time as well. Joseph appreciates how hard Chase works, and he values his contribution to his company. And he would often show this appreciation by lending Chase money when he needed it and keeping him heavily involved in the business. They definitely develop a friendship outside of work, often getting together for dinner during the week. And eventually, Chase is more than just a business associate to Joseph. He becomes a friend of the family. On the morning of February 4th, 2010, it's business as usual when Joseph makes plans with Chase for lunch. That day, Summer had been up early and she was busy too. They had just celebrated Joseph Jr.'s third birthday, and she wanted to put together a fun celebration for him at Chuck E. Cheese. She speaks to her sister, Tracy, and promises to come see her and her newborn son the following week. Before heading out to lunch, Joseph speaks briefly to his father about his latest business deal. His father, Patrick, has plans to come and visit Joseph and his family soon to see their new house which they're in the middle of renovating. Between the usual hustle and bustle of the kids, the business, and the house renovation, Patrick knows that Joseph sometimes takes what he refers to as cell phone holidays. So he doesn't think much of the fact that his calls to him later that day go unanswered. He doesn't even feel alarmed when his calls continue to go unanswered in the days that follow until he hears from Dan Cavanaugh on the 9th. And Dan tells him he's having trouble getting in contact with Joseph too. None of this was like Joseph at all. A few missed calls, maybe, but ignoring orders for his business was unheard of. Patrick lives in Texas, so he isn't able to just jump in his car to go check on his son, but Joseph's brother Michael drives over to the house after days of silence on the 13th. He doesn't see anything unusual outside. Joseph's Isuzu Trooper isn't parked in the driveway, but he sees the family dogs Bear and Digger are in the backyard. There's an open bag of dog food by the shed that seems deliberately left out for the dogs, so Michael thinks. Maybe the family had gone on a spontaneous trip somewhere, which might sound odd, but the family had done that before. Joseph and Summer had gone on small, impromptu trips with the kids in the past, so maybe that's what was going on now. He decides to crawl through an open window just to check on things inside, and it's then that he finds an eerie scene that he struggles to make sense of. There is food left rotting on the kitchen counters. A carton of eggs is left on the table. There are bowls of uneaten popcorn in front of the TV. It looks as if the family had been there one second and gone the next. For Joseph's family, what had started as a small concern that something was wrong 
escalates quickly into certainty. Something is not right here. They report Joseph, Summer, and the kids missing so that the police can help their efforts to find them. The police had actually been out to the mixed day home already. After Dan had requested a welfare check on the 10th, following his repeated attempts to get a hold of Joseph. When they had arrived the first time, no one had answered the door and seeing nothing out of the ordinary, the officers left. But this time, the officers are able to enter the house and they're so disturbed by the scene that they call for a homicide detective to come out immediately. The police also run a license plate search for Joseph's car, the Isuzu Trooper, and they're surprised to learn the car had actually been towed from a parking lot at a strip mall near the Mexican border on the 8th, four days after anyone had last heard from the family. This discovery is confusing for Joseph and Summer's relatives. They have no clue why the family would be anywhere near the border. At the time, Summer's mother tells news outlet KFMB, I don't understand why it was there. I know she didn't like Mexico. But the car is enough for the police to suspect that maybe, for some unknown reason, the family had voluntarily crossed the border into Mexico. So they notify Interpol, which if you don't know what that is, according to the Interpol website, it's an intergovernmental organization that allows police in different countries to share and access data on crimes and criminals. By entering their information into that system, the police hoped to flag any activity by the McStay family in Mexico, if they were, in fact, in Mexico. But it's a theory the police really start to settle on as they continue their investigation. A neighbor surveillance camera had captured what looked to be Joseph's car backing out of the driveway close to 8 p.m. on the day the family presumably went missing. Even though you can't see who's driving, there's nothing showing that it wasn't Summer or Joseph. And then there's the questionable searches that the police find on the McStay's home computer. After performing a forensic search, they come across an inquiry made on January 28th, searching for information on traveling to Mexico with children. And finally, there's the video. In early March, the police release a video that was taken at the Mexican border the night of the family's disappearance. It shows a man walking and holding hands with a small child. Behind him is a woman also holding hands with a second child. To the police, the people in the video appear to be the McStay family and it provides them with the confirmation they're looking for. But Joseph and Summer's families aren't as confident it's them. The video is grainy, so you can't make out their faces. And they still don't know why the family would just pick up and literally flee to Mexico in what must have been an impulsive decision. In the weeks prior, there had been no mention of Mexico from either of them to their families or their friends. Plus, the timing of their trip was strange. Why would they cross the border with their two small children so late at night? What could possibly motivate them to literally drop everything and leave with nothing but the clothes on their backs? 
and relatives point to the recent purchase and renovation of their home, as well as Joseph's successful business, as more evidence that the family was doing well. They had no reason to start a new life elsewhere. But the police, on the other hand, they couldn't see past all of the evidence that seemed to point in one direction, Mexico. Before long, months of searching for the family turns into years. The mystery of their disappearance sparks the interest of the national media and friends and family are featured on various programs talking about the missing family. Friends like Chase, who tells one tabloid that Joseph was his best friend. But his choice of language here is odd. He refers to Joseph in the past tense, which is curious, given the widespread belief that the family was most likely alive and in Mexico. But that isn't the only strange thing about Chase's behavior during this time. When he talks about the day the McStays disappeared, he emphasizes how he was the last person to see Joseph. It's not something someone would typically want to highlight, being the last person in contact with someone who vanished. But he doesn't shy away from the questions surrounding his last interaction with Joseph. He shares in interviews how he and Joseph had met for lunch at Chick-fil-A to discuss work before going their separate ways. He also mentions how that night he had actually missed a call from Joseph that in hindsight he wished more than anything he had answered. For three years, their friends and family try to keep the public's attention on the family's disappearance as part of their effort to find them. They even go as far as traveling to Mexico and putting up flyers. And they get their hopes up when a tip comes in, claiming to have spotted the family at a Walmart. When it turns out it wasn't them, it's just a reminder that they aren't any closer to finding them years later than the day they disappeared. But they had been close to them. The entire time. Because in all of their years of searching for the family in Mexico, Joseph, Summer, Gianni, and Joseph Jr. had never left California, let alone the country. Good morning. On Monday at about 10 o'clock in the morning, we received a call from an off-road motorcycle rider who identified that he found what he believed to be human remains in an area north of Stoddard Wells Road, next to Quarry Road, north of the city of Victorville. He called our dispatch center and a deputy sheriff responded. With the RP's assistance, the deputy found those remains, and within a short time, a coroner's investigator arrived as well. They began checking that area and were able to locate what they believed to be some human remains. We then had the forensic anthropologist respond to the scene to determine whether or not those remains were in fact human. During their investigation, they were able to find two shallow grave sites with a total of four bodies. We continued the investigation on Tuesday and Wednesday, excavating the site and through the use of dental records, we're able to identify the adult victims 
as Summer and Joseph McStay. We believe the other two sets of remains are that of the boys, their sons. On November 13, 2013, the search for the McStay family comes to a heartbreaking end. When the family's remains are found in shallow graves buried in the desert more than 100 miles from their home, the discovery of their remains stuns the community and forces the police to take a closer look at the same people they had spoken to years earlier when the case was just classified as a missing persons case. Of course, one of those people is Chase, especially given some of his odd public comments about the day the family disappeared. The police access his cell phone records, and they learn that his phone pinged in the area where the McStays had been buried in the days following their disappearance. When they bring him in for questioning, he denies ever being in the desert even when he's confronted with that evidence. He also tells police he had never been in the family's Isuzu, but DNA matching his genetic profile is found on the gear shift and the steering wheel of the vehicle. As the police look through the financial records of Joseph's business, they also start to come across some serious red flags that implicate Chase, like checks that had been issued to either Chase or individuals to who he owed money after the family disappeared. But the business's QuickBooks system showed that the checks had been backdated to appear as though they had been written on the 4th. They also discover a call that had been made from Joseph's customer service line to QuickBooks, requesting that his business account be deleted. The caller, who had identified himself as Joseph McStay, didn't know the password for the account, and so the account and all of the incriminating history on it was left intact. Someone, very likely Chase, had been accessing and mismanaging the company's funds both shortly before and after the McStays disappeared. The question was, how did that all tie into the McStays family's disappearance? The police find yet another piece of that puzzle when they discover an email from Joseph to Chase three days before he vanished. In the email, Joseph tells Chase that Chase owed him a lot of money, over $30,000. When investigators talk to Dan Cavanaugh about it, he tells police that Joseph had actually bailed Chase out of a gambling debt, and Joseph had grown more wary of his friendship with Chase around the time he disappeared so much so that he had told Dan he was thinking of firing Chase and ending their business relationship completely. To the police, Chase starts to look like their prime suspect, and it doesn't help that he has a criminal track record that includes felony convictions for burglary and grand theft. The evidence mounting against Chase becomes so compelling that the police arrest him nearly a year after the McStay's bodies are recovered and charge him with four counts of murder. At his trial, the state tells the jury about the financial incentives Chase had in eliminating Joseph and, as a consequence, the debt he owed him. 
But the most distressing detail shared by the prosecution is the manner in which they say Chase took the life of each member of the McStay family, bludgeoning them to death with a sledgehammer he buried next to their shallow graves. There just aren't words to describe how terrifying their last moments must have been, especially when you consider the fact that Gianni and Joseph Jr. were only three and four years old. Chase's defense tries hard to convince the jury that the absence of any evidence linking Chase to their murders should exonerate him. But the jury found the evidence presented was more than enough, and he was found guilty on all charges. On June 10, 2019, Chase Merritt was sentenced to death, and he sits in prison today awaiting his execution on death row. At his sentencing hearing, the families of Joseph and Summer McStay unleashed their grief and rage on the man convicted of forever taking their loved ones from them. Summer's sister told the court, We are scarred for life. It's been almost 10 years, and the pain hasn't subsided. Our family has already received a life sentence. They each spoke of the pain his actions had inflicted on them, but perhaps the most powerful words spoken that day were by Jonah McStay, Joseph's surviving son from his first marriage. Jonah told the court, Ultimately, I hope to be a father, and when I am, I will hold my children close. Closer still, because I know what it's like to lose people I love. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening, and if you like the podcast, please take a second to let me know your thoughts, leave a review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. It really helps it grow. Also, be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at The Stranger You Know Podcast and on Twitter at TSYKpod. If you're listening on Anchor or Spotify, you can also drop me a voice message. Check out the link in the show notes. And if you have a story of betrayal by someone you thought you knew who turned out to be a stranger, email it to the stranger you know podcast at gmail.com and I'll share it on a future episode. Until then, trust no one.